Let's get into some Lucretius Ray. Yeah, deep. On the nature of things. Yes. Deep. Yeah. Uh, but before we do that. <laughs> right. Um, we we want to talk about Epicurus a little bit. Mentioned him a little bit on the last episode. Uh, yeah. We mentioned him back in the Alexander episode. Um, lived around 341 to 270 BCE, Mm -hmm. established his own school in Athens known as the Garden around about 300 BCE. As I said last time, it's sort of that period after Alexander died when the Athenians were like, well, fuck now, what do we do? A couple (laughs) of them went, I don't know, philosophy, that'll take up some time, let's do that. (laughs) So these great philosophical schools, the Stoics and the Epicureans, both emerged around about the same time in Athens, became great rivals, very similar in many ways, I find, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Yeah. Um, But um, Lucretius was an Epicurean, so we're going to talk about Epicurus. Um, Now... It's it's what we're going to talk about partly in this episode, partly in the next episode. Is we're going to get into Epicurean philosophy a little bit. Now, you and I were talking earlier in the week about this, and you yeah. you, you 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 were shocked to learn that uh, Epicureanism wasn't what you thought it was. Absolutely. I mean, you you grow up, you know, it's, it's conventional wisdom. Plus, let's be honest, what, what you hear from the, the church or whatever. But basically, you know, Epicurean, it's all about pleasure. It's all about extreme. It's all about, you know, just going and never stopping. And there's no moderation. There's no checking. You just go. And if it makes you feel good, do it. There's no morality. There's no limits or whatever. You just, it's sumptuousness. Turned up to eleven, and 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 anything that can be enjoyed physically, go for it. And that's pretty much what I assumed this was, based on what I've been told. Eat, eating, drinking, and fucking to your heart's content. <laughs> yeah, and All that's at the same the, time. Right. That, as we will see, um, mostly in the next episode, I think, yeah. was deliberate. <sighs> Propaganda yeah. spread by the Christians to thanks Christians prevent people from looking into Epicureanism. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, from what we know about Epicurus, uh, he and his followers led very simple lives, and his teaching was all about yes, being happy. Yeah. Uh, and seeking pleasure, but seeking pleasure through living a simple, clean, pure life, eating simple meals, right. surrounded by friends. Women were allowed to be part of it along with men. Nothing wrong with sex, but it wasn't no. like, you know, a, a, an, an orgy club. Right. Um, <laughs> and it was about, look, the, the, the path to happiness is about living together almost in a, like a little commune uh, right. with friends and living simply and talking about philosophy yeah. was sort of the, the, uh, what the Epicurean school was all about. Now, he himself apparently was an extremely prolific writer, is said to have written over 300 works on a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Unfortunately, the vast majority of these have been lost. There's only three letters written by him and two collections of quotes Mm -hmm. that have survived the ages and a few fragments of other things, but that's basically it. Most of what we know about his teachings comes from later authors, 
particularly Lucretius and right. on the nature of things, as we talked about in the last episode. That was the only surviving copy of that beyond some fragments from right. the village of the Papyri in Herculaneum. The only surviving complete copy of that was found by Poggio in 1417, we think, at uh, the monastery in Fulda in Germany. Yeah. Uh, there, it's also some uh, mention of his teachings by uh, Diogenes, our old mate Dicaro, um, and some of the works that have been discovered by Philodemus, who was a contemporary of Lucretius, and a guy called Sextus Empiricus. Which yeah. is a pretty cool name, I have to say. Um, <laughs> but I'm the empir- empirical <laughs> Sextus. He was a Rapper. physician and philosopher, oh, probably lived in Alexandria, they think, or maybe in Athens, maybe in Rome. Uh, his work is the most complete surviving account of something called Pyrrhonism. It's the school of philosophy that was founded by Pyrrho in the 4th century BCE. Wow. If I could just add on to what we were talking about earlier this week and just a couple of minutes ago, my shock was not only was Epicureanism not what I thought it was, but even when you tell someone it's about seeking pleasure, even that they'll probably get wrong because they'll assume too much too far because for Epicurus, the purpose of philosophy was to attain the happy, tranquil life characterized by ataraxia, which is peace and freedom from fear and an absence of absence of pain. So I'm not trying to pleasure myself 24 hours a day, but if I can live such a life in a very modest, unassuming way, eat simply, spend time with friends and have fascinating conversations and really milk my days and enjoy my life, what I'm doing is I'm not seeking some super high. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to avoid fear and pain. That's what he means by happiness. That's what he means by peace and tranquility. So unless you actually dig into it a little bit, you're still going to assume wrong based on what conventional wisdom or whatever you want to call it, a culture, Western culture has told us what Epicureanism is. Yeah. So ataraxia, the freedom from fear, inner peace, Mm -hmm. Um, and then aponia, the absence of pain. And my understanding of aponia, it's not just the absence of physical pain, although they right. do, you know, talk about health, uh, you know, physical health, but it's also psychological pain, emotional ah, pain. guilt, stuff like that. Yeah, guilt, guilt and anxiety and resentment yeah. and all those sorts Jealousy. of things. It was a... Uh-huh. Yeah. It was... A philosophy based on, uh, you know, eliminating those things from your life by mm-hmm. having a scientific view of uh, the meaning of existence, as much yeah. as they had science in uh, the sort of second century BCE. Um, now, Epicurus taught that the root of all of human problems is death denial. Yeah. Now, I think this is misunderstood. If, if you read, like, entries about this in Wikipedia or, or summaries like that, I, I don't think they really understand it. And I'm basically, mm. you know, okay, so I'm not claiming to be an expert on Epicureanism, but you know that I wrote a book on my own philosophy, The Three Illusions, right. eight or nine years ago. You and I have done a podcast about it. And basically, 
there's there's a huge overlap between Epicureanism and my own philosophy, the Three Illusions, which has you know been the subject of my own study of different things for thirty odd years. So I, I, on the basis of that, I think I have a I think I'm simpatico with Epicurus. I think we, yeah. we were talking about the absolutely. same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and th- what this whole death denial thing, I think, is not just about death being painful and scary. The 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 process of dying, mm-hmm. but it's this um, the fear of non-existence that comes around death. I think right. what p- scares most people about death is this idea that well, a I I can't imagine not existing yeah what, what would that be like and b what will happen after i die is right. there an afterlife is there a hell is there a heaven will yeah. i get in yeah, all of that right exactly yeah. but for you know for the greeks i don't think that was as big a thing for the greeks in 300 bce because they didn't really have a very developed sense of the afterlife Mm-hmm. There was this general idea that if you were a great warrior or a great king, right. you might end up in Elysium Fields. There might be some special paradise set aside for you. Nice. But for the average people, yeah. there wasn't really much. They're like, eh, yeah. you know, you might end up as a shade, um, you know, walking around the earth, uh, you know, Watching women get undressed in secret from the corners of the... We don't know, really. We, <laughs> but we're we not know. too worried about it. Yeah. There was this whole idea of Hades and, you know, you may go to the underground right. and this and that. But it wasn't like, like it wasn't this sort of Christian sense of, oh, you're going to be tortured for yeah. all eternity. Even the Jews didn't really have much of a sense of heaven or hell. They didn't spend a lot in, of time um, thinking about it. No, there yeah. wasn't a very developed concept in any of these ancient... Uh, religions until the Christians, you know, Thanks, Christians. decided they needed something to scare the scare the kiddies with. <laughs> <clears throat> but I think it's this just but the, but humans do have this general fear of um, just death. It's a scary concept when you think about it, and so they would they were trying to develop a philosophy where that was no longer the driving fear of your life. Gotcha. Because, yeah, you, you spend so much of your time not living if you're thinking about all the bad things that can and will happen to you or whatever. You're not really living. Yeah. 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 Now, the Epicureans kind of acknowledge that gods might exist, mm-hmm. but their basic view on the gods was, look, if they do exist, uh, they've got no involvement at all in human affairs. Right. They're not rewarding or punishing um, because they're off doing their own thing. Now, what's the point of being a god if you're not off doing godly <laughs> god things? Right, like living in 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 the heavens, doing heavenly things. There would be yeah. no point. Why? Why? God's coming down and getting involved in human affairs is like humans coming down and getting involved in the affairs of mice. Right. What's the point? Let me in here. Why, why would yeah. you do that? That's ridiculous. That makes no sense. <laughs> So they basically said, look, the gods might exist, but got nothing to do with us. They don't right. give a shit. All of the mythology that we have, which we know is prevalent in Greece and Rome, about where you've got to sacrifice to the gods to keep them happy, or they're going to make us lose a war, or they're going to send a famine, or that. Right. Epicurus are like, no, 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 that's all bullshit. Forget yeah, all that shit. That's exactly. nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
Can, can I, before we go on, just two, two quick questions. One, because I'm, I'm guessing since we're having to redefine Epicureanism, do we also need to redefine hedonist? Because Epicurus was a hedonist, think, you know, meaning, of course, that what is pleasurable is morally good and what is painful is morally evil. But again, for him, pleasure, a big part of that was the absence of suffering, which I, in some ways, so, so it's almost like we have to redefine that word. And as I was reading through this, and I wanted to get your opinion, I kept what little bit I know about Buddhism. I, I felt like the, these two overlapped as well. It's like if you don't go out and desire all these things and, and have envy and try to get all these things, and if you don't get them, then you're going to feel sad or miserable or left out or whatever. So if you don't desire, you don't put it out there, then you can't be hurt. I, I just felt like there was a lot of overlap just kind to live simply and accept things the way they are and don't worry about all the stuff you don't have. Just focus on the basics, good friends, simple meals, live your life. Don't worry about death. And the rest of it can go fuck itself. <laughs> that was yeah. not very Buddha-like. But I, I just got the sense like, oh, this was reminding me of what little I know of Buddhism. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot of overlap between uh, Epicureanism and Hedonism. Mm. You know, Hedonism, I think, was started around about the same time, sort of 4th century BCE by Aristippus of Cyrene. Okay. Um, and, you know, yeah, hedonism is about seeking pleasure, but again, not eating like a pig and just being a drunkard and right. uh, having orgies all the time. These guys were more about the simple pleasures of living yeah. a good life, like a Socrates or an Aristotle would teach too. It's about living a good life, a moral life, an ethical life, Focusing on your own shit, being a good person, yeah. being a good friend, good husband, good father or, or, or parent, um, and you know, studying philosophy. That it's not about how much money you've got or what war you're fighting in or mm-hmm. any of these sorts of things. It's about enjoying the moment. This is where the overlap with Buddhism or, or you know, the school of philosophy that I was trained in when I was 18 is uh, Advaita. It it's, uh, comes out of Hinduism. Mm-hmm. It is to Hinduism what Zen Buddhism is to Buddhism. It's sort of the philosophical school of, of studying the nature of reality and the nature right. of self and those sorts of things. Overlaps with all these things. They, they're basically the same teaching, I think. The same basic insights into the nature of existence, the nature of reality, that these pre-scientific philosophers had, they're just in different parts of the world at different times using slightly different language, Mm. but they're basically all teaching the same thing. Um, Right. Slight variations, but basically the same thing. Is that because it's as close as they can get to with their limited knowledge of observation about trying to discover universal truths? Keep it simple. Keep your head down. Live a good life and don't get caught up in all the shit. Basically. Yeah, I think so. But these guys, the Epicureans came very fucking close um, to scientific truths, and we'll get into that in a second. So... um, Epicurus, like Aristotle, who was sort of a generation before him, Mm -hmm. he was an empiricist. He believed that the senses were the only reliable source of knowledge. So you had to study the world. To get to the truth, 
you had to you had to examine the world, study it, and um, use logic and reason to work out what was going on. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of his science, as it was, right. he got from an earlier philosopher, Democritus. Democritus lived from about 460 to 370 BCE. So mm-hmm. he's he's from a generation even before wow. Aristotle. Right. Now, Democritus taught that the universe is made up of extremely small, invisible particles that they called atoms. Right. I think the word atom uh, is Greek. Uh, tom is the ability to divide something. Ah. Um, and a is uh, not in mm-hmm. Greek, the suffix a, no, prefix. Not a suffix, is it? It's a prefix. Um, so a tom is something which can't be divided, can't be cut, right. according to the Greeks. So as far as it was their word for the smallest particle of matter. Of course, today we um, right. know that what we call atoms are made up of smaller components, but they didn't know any of that. They are just going... There is something really, really small that's at the basis of everything, and we're going to call it the 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 uncuttable, which yeah. is what a tomos or atom makes means. sense. Yeah. Mm. So um, yeah, that that was uh, Democritus was the guy who really put that forward. Now uh, Epicurus deviated from Democritus in a little way. Democritus didn't believe in free will. Right. He said, um, everything is made up of atoms and atoms determine everything, so there's no such thing as free will. Dem- Dem- uh, Epicurus and uh, his school of thought seemed to have suggested that atoms did something they called swerve. They would deviate from their expected, uh, uh, determined course right. and that free will might exist in the swerve somehow. But even that's debatable if that's what they meant by it. And I'll get into that a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Democritus himself may have developed um, atomism. Uh, there was a guy who may have existed before him called Leucippus that uh, historians aren't really sure if he even existed, but there are right. there are some ancient sources that say that um, Epicurus got the idea of atoms from Le- no, sorry, Democritus got the idea of right. atoms from Leucippus. Mm-hmm. But um, then there are other sources that say no, Leucippus never even existed. It's just made up. Uh, it's really Democritus. Yeah. Um, anyway, so there you go. That's the so that brings us down to Lucretius and this poem that Poggio found on the nature of things. So basically, it's a massive poem. All about the philosophy of Epicureanism. And what I would like to do for the rest of this episode is read excerpts from it. Now, it's a big fucking poem. It's five (laughs) books. I haven't read the entire thing. I've read 
book one in its entirety several times and maybe half of the other four books I've skimmed. Yeah. What about you? How much of it have you read yeah. or listened to on your Audible? Account? Yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been jumping to subject stuff that I really thought that it, not only did they interest me, but they also, like we were saying earlier, lined up really well with the three illusions, and I just kind of wanted to compare. So I've just been kind of jumping around, kind of as main points in the book. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So you, you looked it up in Wikipedia, is what you're really saying there. <laughs> don't don't pretend that you did anything. Wikipedia you're not fooling so- anyone, Harris. <laughs> But I learned some. No, seriously, as, as we were saying um, Monday when we were recording the news show, it's nice. It's not, I don't know about the word nice. It's amazing that in, I guess, roughly 50 BCE, and, and obviously before that, someone sat down, pretty much figured out the universe almost the way it is, made some mistakes here and there with gods and where the sun and planet and all that shit, but made some mistakes, but pretty much nailed the laws of physics in the universe of more than 2000 years ago. And we're still giving a whole bunch of money to and power to churches. And that controls a lot of lives over. And they nailed this stuff more than 2000 years ago. These people more or less nailed the reality of our existence. And it, I just found it's that amazing. It is amazing. And the reason yeah. I want to spend a bit of time talking about this is just to show people who aren't familiar with it how amazing these guys were. Just yeah. through observation, yes, they yes. worked out stuff that we wouldn't have empirical proof of for another <laughs> two and a half thousand years. And when you yeah. read their explanation of it, even written as a poem by Lucretius, you're like, oh, yeah. I guess so. That's pretty obvious, right? <laughs> anyway, let's get into it. So Lucretia starts off with a fairly traditional ode to the goddess Venus. Mm-hmm. Mother of Aeneas's sons, joy of men and gods, nourishing Venus, who beneath the stars that glide across the sky, crams full of life, ship-bearing seas and fruitful lands, through you are conceived all families of living things which rise up to gaze upon the splendor of sunlight. And when you approach, goddess, winds and sky clouds scurry off. For your sake, artful earth puts forth sweet flowers. For you, smooth seas smile, calm sky pours glittering light. And once day's face reveals the spring, winds blow freely from the west bringing fertility and airborne birds whose heart your power strikes give first signs of you, goddess, and your approach. Hmm. So much in the style that would later be copied by Virgil and Mm -hmm. Ovid and Horace, he's like, oh, goddess (laughs) Venus, we owe everything to you. You rock. Yeah. Yeah. So, But. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Then he goes, but the gods probably have nothing to do with us, really. I mean, I just said all of that yeah. because that's what you expect at the beginning right. of an epic poem. But really, yeah, they don't nah. give a fuck. Yeah, they don't give a fuck. We're ants to them, or mice, as yeah. you said. Yeah. So before long, he starts talking about. He uses all of this as a way of of getting into a discussion about gods and how man created religion to try and understand what the gods want and then how religion made people miserable because mm-hmm. they're trying to figure out what the gods want from them and the god the gods don't want anything from them and so they're miserable trying to figure out well, well shit we thought they wanted 
you know, this sacrifice to this, you know, we, we sacrificed a calf. Yeah. And then bad shit happened. Then we got a famine anyway. So, oh, fuck. <laughs> what, like, what are we doing wrong? He basically <laughs> talks about how the only, the, what we need to do is get rid of superstition and use right. reason to determine what's going on instead of superstition. Yeah. There's a section here that I like. And so this terror, this darkness of mind must be dispelled not by rays from the sun or bright shafts of daylight, but by reason and the face of nature. And we will start to weave her first principle as follows. Nothing is ever brought forth by the gods from nothing. That is, of course, how, through fear, all mortal men are held in check. They view many things done on earth and in the sky, effects whose causes they cannot see at all, and so they assume that such things happen because of gods. Hence, Mm. once we understand that nothing can be produced from nothing, then we shall more accurately follow what we are looking for, how everything can be created and all work can be done without any assistance from the gods. Nice. And then a little later, he explains Mm. that, well, when you observe the world around you, you see that matter breaks down. Things crumble over time. Yeah. But if all matter continued to break down endlessly (laughs) over time, by now, nothing would exist. And the world is so old, the universe is so old... Everything would have disappeared by now, and yet new things are appearing all the time. So what the Mm -hmm. fuck's going on? (laughs) So he says, he writes, Therefore there is no substance which is reduced to nothing, but Mm. all things, once dissolved, go back to material stuff. Right. So what he's saying is that something, even when things break down, there's something that remains Mm -hmm. throughout time, which is then used to build new things. Yeah. Logical conclusion, I guess. Then a little later, he explains how things which are invisible to the naked eye can still carry a powerful force. First of all, the power of wind, once roused, lashes harbours, annihilates huge ships, scatters clouds. Sometimes in swift whirling storms it sweeps across the plains, covering them with giant trees, and assaults mountain tops with blasts that splinter wood. That's how fiercely the wind howls out in passionate anger, screaming and threatening with a frantic howl. And therefore, we can have no doubt that winds, although invisible, are bodies too. They sweep sea and land as well as sky clouds, jolt and ravage them with sudden whirlwinds. They rush on ahead and spread destruction, just as water, whose nature is delicate, suddenly carried in a flooding stream, gorged with massive runoff from heavy rains, down towering mountains races on, hurling broken branches of the trees together, whole trees as well. Strong bridges cannot stand against the sudden power of the flood as it charges on. In that way, swollen with so much rain, the river then attacks with its massed violent force, foundations of the bridge. With a mighty roar, it spreads devastation, 
rolling immense boulders underneath its waves, obliterating whatever blocks its flow. And that, therefore, must be how blasts of wind are carried too, uh. when like powerful rivers they swoop down any place they wish, they drive things forward and pummel them with repeated onslaughts. Sometimes they seize things in a twisting whirl and carry objects instantly away in a spiralling vortex. That is why, to make the point again, winds are bodies, although unseen, for in the way they act and in what they do, we find they rival great streams which are clearly material stuff. Then, too, we sense the different smells of things, yet Mm. never glimpse them coming to our nostrils. Our eyes do not perceive a fiery heat, nor can they see the cold. As for voices, we're not used to viewing them, but still, all must consist of corporeal stuff, since they can strike our senses. For unless there is bodily substance, no object can touch or itself be touched. Moreover, clothes... Hung up on a beach with breaking waves, get wet. But these same garments, once spread out, dry off in sunlight, yet no one has seen how water moisture makes its way to them or how, by contrast, influenced by heat, it escapes again. The moisture, therefore, is broken up in tiny particles our eyes cannot, through any means, make out. God. Now, again, I just want to state the obvious. Back in, what, 400 BCE or whatever, the you know, fourth century, these guys sat around, did nothing more than observe. And like you were saying, the smells, the wind, the water, and they were able to come up with something completely brand new, as far as we know, that we consider to be common knowledge only because they came up with it more than 2000 years ago. I just find it amazing that they were able to just sit around, observe, think this through because they can't do any experiments and they pretty much nailed, just nailed it, the, the universe as it is and, and as it functions. I'm, Amazing, I'm, just, right? I'm just blown away by that. I just yeah, absolutely, me too. Blown, yeah. If, me too. Did you have a follow-up for what you just read? Because I wanted to mention something about atoms again. I've got lots, but yeah. You okay. Can, no, just going back to the atoms for a second. Again, like you were saying that these are uh, – Atoms make up everything from the stars to humans to the lowliest insects. And these building blocks themselves are permanent, as is the ceaseless process of formation, dissolution, and redistribution. So it just over and over and over again. And sometimes they get together and make bigger things. Sometimes they don't get together and they make smaller things like birds or whatever. But then he goes into, and so the destructive destructive motions cannot hold sway eternally and bury existence forever, nor can the motions that cause life and and growth preserve created things eternally. Thus, in this war that has been waged from time everlasting, the con- contest between the elements is an equal one. Now here, now there. The vital forces conquer and in turn are conquered. And I don't, I don't want to jump too far ahead of you, Cam, but, and of course, this is kind of what we're saying. The, from that idea right there alone, the Spanish-born Harvard philosopher, um, philosopher Jorge Santayana said that this idea, this ceaseless mutation of forms composed of indestructible substances, atoms, are, is the greatest thought that mankind has ever hit upon. And I think hit upon is the exact correct words to use because they can't do experiments. They can't test it. They can't run it against something else. This is just their observation. But they hit upon it 
And they got it right. Yeah. Things aren't created by the gods. They're created by atoms. I'm out. Good night. Thank (laughs) you. Try the veal. It was amazing. And forgotten about until. Yes. Oh, my God. Until Poggio found this copy of Lucretius in 1417. And all of a sudden people went to go. People started going, huh, atoms. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what about okay. the church? What about the <laughs> army? What about the state? Anyway, we'll get into that. So then uh, in Lucretius, he starts to use some logic to work out that everything must be made of these small invisible things. Mm-hmm. He says, with many yearly solar orbits, a ring worn on the finger through long use wears out underneath, and dripping water falling from the eaves hollows out a stone. On a plowshare, the blade's curving edge, though composed of iron, when used in farmland, thanks to some concealed effect, gets smaller. We know people's feet wear down paving stones, and bronze statues beside the gate reveal that their right hands are being eroded by people touching them so frequently Mm -hmm. when they salute them then walk on by. So we see these things are getting smaller as they are rubbed, but the jealous nature of our vision prevents our noticing at any moment matter moving off. (sighs) Finally, whatever material stuff, time and nature, little by little, add to things, forcing them gradually to grow. The sharpness of our straining eyes can see none of it, nor once more what wastes away through old age and decay. Nor can you see what rocks hanging by the sea and eaten by corrosive salt lose in each moment. Hence, mm-hmm. nature works with unseen particles. And again, they're just observing that things change and I don't see it changing. It must happen very gradually and something very small is changing it because I don't see it. But instead of freaking out and thinking they should sacrifice to please whatever God they can't see, they use logic and reason, and they deduce that it must be a process. They don't understand the process, and they admit they don't understand the process, but there must be an unseen process that causes those things. Mm, just logic, man. Logic. Logic. It, and just, just well, I'll just kind of jump into something very short, then you can go on. And of course, one of the other great thoughts in this book is when you, when you think about Adams, and he did believe in gods, but he thought, you know, gods didn't care what we do, and it does, you can't please them or make them unhappy. But if, you, if everything is down to atoms and chemical reactions or the laws of physics, that pretty much means there's no end or purpose to existence. You might die, humans for whatever reason might die out, but some life in some form on some planet or other, something's going to keep going on because that's what atoms do. Atoms, they don't care. They're just doing their thing according to, we know, to the laws of physics. It's just going to go on. So to tell someone in Poggio's time, there's no purpose to existence. You're not here to please a God or you're not beholden to a God because he made you and he's kind of looking out for you. There's you here, not here. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. There's no purpose except for what you give it. You tell that to a Christian or to a bishop or a cardinal or a pope, they're going to have you killed. That's <laughs> just what they need to do to, to protect their own. But it's ideas, ideas like this that have been missing for, for at least 1,400 years. 
as everyone knows, anyone who um, has DM'd me um, and tells me some sob story about what's going on in their life, <laughs> right. no, my typical response is, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, but guess what? It's just Adam's, baby. It's just Waves Adam's. on the ocean, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't it's matter. just Adam's moving around, that's all it is. Adam's, <laughs> as you said, you give it meaning. Yeah. If, or don't. If you, if you look, yeah. Yeah. Or you can choose to go, it's just Adam's obeying the laws of physics, man. I mean, there's yeah, nothing to be, all I no if, buts, or maybes. Right. No, it should have been different. Adam's do what Adam's do. There's no if, you know, should, should have. No, laws yeah. of physics say it's going to happen this way. It just fucking happens. So let it happen. Right. It's Adam's, man. There's nothing you can do about it's it. It's going to happen. You're exactly. Adam's too. <laughs> so then uh, in the book, Lucretius, this is just all book one. He logics... <clears throat> How all objects, no matter how solid they appear, must contain empty space. Mm-hmm. He says, and then why do we see some things weigh more than other things when there is no difference in their size? For if in a ball of wool there is just as much matter as in lead, they should weigh the same. Since material stuff has the property of pushing all things down. But by contrast, the nature of a void continues on without weighing anything. And so the object, which is just as large and yet seems lighter, clearly demonstrates that it contains in it more empty space, whereas the heavier object indicates that it has more material stuff inside and far less void. Thus, there can be no doubt the thing which we, with our keen argument, are seeking out, what we describe as void, exists mixed in with substantial matter. Mm. So, uh, you know, today we know that inside of atoms you have a nucleus and inside of the nucleus you have protons and protons are what give the atom its atomic number and its weight. So we do know that there are certain elements that are heavier than other elements, and it's all got to do with the amount of uh, weight or the the number of protons or the amount of space, if you want, in the nucleus of the atom. So again, he was right. He fucking figured it out. (laughs) Even solid objects have different weights based on the amount of matter, or as he calls it, void, which just means the absence of matter. Um, inside of these things, d- yeah. regardless of how solid they appear to our senses, mm-hmm. they, there must be something going on at a deeper level. Yeah. If, if I can just give uh, another example, the one that I really enjoy. And again, I, I don't mean this to sound as anti, anti-church as it does. And, and it probably wasn't what he wasn't thinking either, what he was thinking either. It's just that he's trying to explain the Epicurean philosophy to Romans. So the other, another part of his, and I'll just paraphrase, you know, the universe wasn't created for or about humans. The earth with its, with its seas and deserts and harsh climates and wild beasts and diseases obviously wasn't obviously isn't ready-made for a human just to be born and feel safe and secure because there's a lot of things that can kill you and take you out. And when you are born, you pretty much are helpless for a very long time, whereas a lot of animals that you see being born can walk within a couple of hours or at least do something to take care of themselves. So obviously the universe is not all about us. And so the idea that God created this for us and put us over all the animals to rule them and yet be subject to him, that's just all 
construct. That's all just man-made. You can't take it personally because it's not all about you. You have to kind of unlearn all that you've been taught. Yeah, but of course, Lucretius, if he's writing this in 50 BCE, no one's talking about you know the god of the Jews at this stage. Right. Not Christ- in this circle. Right. Anyway. The pagan, outside of the pagan a, gods. Outside of a funny right. superstition yeah. that these desert lovers uh, have. Yeah, but the, the gods, the, the the pagan pantheon of gods. You know, yeah. he says something to the effect of, you the know, gods. people think right. they made all of this for us. If they did, they did a shitty job of it because uh, everything's fucked. You get sick and you die. What, what, what's the good of Who creates a world for humans and then makes it so you get sick and die or murdered or raped or burned right. alive or volcanoes right. and shit like that? It's fucked. Eat They're shitty gods if, they, exactly. if this is what they built for us. <laughs> And so yeah. at the end of book one, he thing. sort of he su- he summarizes all of this um, as this: we shall prove that there are seeds, primary elements of matter, from which, in the grand total of created things, all objects now are made. Furthermore, if material stuff had not been eternal, all things would have been utterly reduced to nothing long ago, and things we see yeah. would have been reborn from nothing. But since, as I have previously explained, nothing can be produced from nothing, and further, what has been produced cannot be reduced to nothing, then first elements must be made of everlasting stuff, into which, when its time is over, every object can be dissolved, so matter is produced for the renewal of things. And that's just the beginning of book one. There are five books... (laughs) And in them he talks he about free will, soul, love, how magnets work, you name it. Now, obviously he yeah. gets a lot of stuff wrong, but he also gets a yeah. lot of stuff right. I just want to do this. I'm sorry, I didn't. Okay. Um, I, I just want to do the soul one real quick. He says, the human soul is made up of the same material as your body. The fact that we cannot physically locate the soul in a particular organ only means that it is made of exceedingly minute particles interlaced through the veins, flesh, and sinews. Again, who knows? Probably not right, but he's doing a lot better than uh, other philosophies. Our instruments are not fine enough to weigh the soul. At the moment of death, it dissolves. So if you die, when you die, your body decays and goes back down to atoms. Your soul is made of the same thing your body is made of. So that must disintegrate back to atoms as well, which means you are completely gone. Your body, your soul, everything is gone. And if that's the case, there is no afterlife. There's no paradise. You're not going to be judged because there's literally nothing left. So you don't have to worry about it. All this religion is just superstitious delusions. You don't have to worry about it. And again, like you said a couple of minutes ago, this is what, 50 or 55 BC? This is before the rise of, of Christianity. So in some ways, it's kind of perfect that he got this out or he was able to write this book and get out. And from what we know, it was read and commented on by Cicero and other philosophers, and it was respected in some circles and others not so much. But it's good that he got it written down and got it out, and people wrote about it in their letters before the rise of Christianity, because they're already going to do what they need to do when they when they get in power to make sure this stuff never sees the light of day again. Yeah. And that's what we'll talk about in the next episode, how... 
the Christians went to extreme lengths to destroy and demonize the Epicureans, among others, but also the Epicureans because yeah. this philosophy that the Epicureans were teaching was antithetical to Christianity and so it had to be eliminated from history and they did a bloody yeah. good job of it. But um, that would oh, be... That'll be for next time. Before we go, I think I might have our first coffee, well, a coffee mug for the Renaissance. One of um, Epicurus's letters to Menoceus, I'm not sure how to say his name, is he writes about, um, you know, death and, and all the stuff that comes with it, and there's, which leads to a Epicurean epitaph. And it goes, I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. I wasn't here, then I was here, now I'm not here in the future, and because of that, I don't care. I don't know if that makes a good uh, coffee mug. Maybe we'll put it with a picture of Fan, Pan fucking the goat. Who knows? But I was just trying to come up with a coffee <laughs> mug for this for this show. I love it. It's great. <laughs> All right, we'll be back next time.